Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Glad to hear it. Well, we're doing a, a short series on, uh, on Christmas that we usually stop, pause this time of year for a while and, and take a break from whatever book we're going through at the time and, and recognize this time of year. And this time of year, uh, one of the things we want to take a look at is the Christmas story and the, the workings of God to bring forth Christ into the world. And as I said earlier, it's the beginning of the greatest event uh, in world history, that, that being the whole ministry of Christ, including the cross and resurrection and ascension. And so that all together being one great event, uh, we pause to celebrate the beginning of those things and how he began to institute this great step in all that he's doing. So we'll be in Luke chapter 1 today, Luke chapter 1, and we'll be taking a look at uh, what is called uh, the the Magnificat. We'll be looking at the visit of Mary with Elizabeth, but we'll also be looking at what is called the Magnificat, which is the song that Mary uh, brings us in that. And there's actually, if you take a look and you read the Christmas story, there are four hymns uh, in the account of the Christmas story, and I'll, I'll leave it to you to find them all in there and to look for them, but you can usually tell because they're formatted as poetry and you know they're, they're lifted up to God uh, regarding what's happening at this time. So we actually get some of our hymnology uh, and, and hopefully the hymns come straight from Scripture, and that's what you hope is that that's a distilling of, of scriptural truth and Many of our hymns reflect those things, and sometimes it takes reading the scriptures, reacquainting yourself with the biblical account of the birth of Christ to really understand some of the hymns and what they're saying and what they mean uh, by what they're saying. So it's a good study to kind of test those things against scripture, to search it out, and to see what it says. What I've called today is My Spirit Rejoices, based upon something that Mary says here, in her Magnificat, and it's, it's a profound and helpful thing that we see Mary doing. And somebody might come and say, as, as Christians gather together for the holidays, most Christians making a big deal out of the holidays, uh, taking time off, uh, buying many gifts for family, getting, having many get-togethers, traveling around. Uh, is this a proper time to celebrate? with the things going on in the world, with the difficulties that we see. As we turn on evening news, we see wars and rumors of wars, as Jesus predicted. And we see that uh, there are many poor and unfortunate people, and there are many sicknesses going around. And, and there's just many things in the world that people would say, is it, is it right and proper that you should pause, and you should celebrate, and you should feast, and you should lift up hymns, and, and, and you should get together and, and spend all this time on these things when there's obvious problems in the world and work to be done. Well, Mary's going to give us a great example of somebody who's got a lot going on, a lot of things that need attention, and a lot of concerns, and a lot of worries, and yet he rejoices, and Elizabeth with her 
and they rejoice together. And this joy is something that we associate with Christmas. And it's one of the key words we see all associated with Christmas decorations and things like that is people constantly talking about joy. Well, what does that mean? And where does it come from? And, and why now more than ever uh, do we celebrate this joy? And why do we rejoice, which is the verb form of joy, to have joy is to rejoice. Well, I'm going to say this right up front, that joy characterizes Christmas because it is a milestone in God's plan to redeem humanity. Christmas is a, a great milestone in, in all of that God has done to redeem humanity. So it's important for us to take a look at that and see why would joy be associated with this. Well, we're going to begin by reading part of this, and we want to... Uh, take a look at the scriptures here and we're going to read in Luke chapter 1 beginning at verse 39 and we're going to read down through verse 45 and then we'll cover the rest of it a little bit later so let's take a look at what it says here in Luke it says in those days and of course the previous verse was wrapping up of the angel's visit to Mary to announce to her what was going to happen and so Immediately she goes and, and does this. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to pause for a second and just remind you, read the beginning of the chapter to find out who this Elizabeth and Zechariah are. And you'll find out that Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. She is elderly. They had never had any children. She was considered barren. And yet, the Lord has done a miraculous thing in her to have her conceive in her old age to bear John the Baptist. And she is now six months pregnant. Verse 42, she exclaimed with a loud cry, said Elizabeth, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Well, so here we have this meeting that Mary goes, she visits Elizabeth, and we see as she does so that Elizabeth rejoices. And she rejoices at several things. And the first thing we want to see that happens, and the character that's kind of a minor character in this scene, but nevertheless critically important, is John. That John is actually seen here displaying joy. And this is amazing because... According to Luke 1.15, as the angel came to Zechariah, one of the things he said to Zechariah regarding this child that would be born, regarding John, he says to him, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And here comes Mary, just, just having had in her conceived by the Holy Spirit, the Christ child, Jesus, she comes to visit and John leaps in the womb. Of his mother so much so that she feels it more than usual if you know what I mean ladies and so this is exciting because Gabriel said this would happen and here six months later indeed there's evidence of it 
that what is totally unseen in Mary is perceived by the child in the womb, by the Spirit of God. And this is a beautiful thing that we see. And, and we're also told who this John is going to be. And when we go back and we examine the account, we see that John was going to be this one to go before the Lord. We'll talk more about that later. But he was the one that was going to announce, as it were, the Messiah and introduce him to the world. And here he is getting an early start by testifying to his very presence, even while he has just been conceived. So John is going to have this great privilege later in a very more concrete way, in a more direct way, in a very public way to do this, but here he does it in private for the encouragement of his mother and the mother of Christ. So the Spirit of God has the ability to impart joy to us when we do not fully grasp what's going on. I want you to think about that for a moment. John is a six-month-old baby in the womb. There are many things we know, and as Christians, and, and the testimony of the Bible is very clear, personhood begins at conception. That's very clear. That's why we are so, so rail against abortion and so fight the act of abortion, because you are committing homicide. But we know certain things scientifically about children in the womb. There are certain things they are aware of, certain things they can sense, certain things they understand and respond to, and certain things they do not. One of the things is the, their mother's voice. They recognize their mother's voice from a very early time. It's imprinted upon them, because every time she speaks, they they sense it, they hear it, they feel the vibration. They also sense other things. They sense her mood. They sense the mood of people around. If they're shouting in the room, the baby responds. But here, something that physically the child could not know, could not perceive, could not understand, was that Jesus Christ was there. And the Spirit can grant joy. Joy that would cause a baby to leap in the womb. And joy in us, even when we don't fully understand what's going on around us. So that's John's joy. He was filled with the Spirit. He testified to Jesus here. He will testify to Jesus much later as well. But there's even more to this. There's Elizabeth's joy. And Elizabeth's joy is multifold, and hers is centered on what she calls blessings. She acknowledges blessings, and according to the verses there, she was filled with the Spirit. When this happened, the baby leaps in her womb, and she is instantly filled with the Spirit and begins to rejoice. But what does she mean by a blessing? And a blessing is something worthy of praise to God, because if, if you call someone blessed, by implication, you are implying that God has done something for them. So to call someone blessed is to not to puff them up or to pay them a compliment, but it's to pay God a compliment for what he has done for them. And so this is why we can say to someone, God bless you. 
And that indeed, if it doesn't become just a habit, if it doesn't lose its meaning by repetition, it is something so profoundly good to say to somebody. And so she focuses her attention around the idea of blessings. And let's go to the scriptures and take a look at that. Because she says here, as she enters the house, a baby leaps in her room, she exclaimed, and then first of all, in verse 42, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And so she pronounces this blessing upon Mary. She counts herself blessed, and in verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? In other words, she's marveling, who am I? that you should be coming to me. And she first marvels at, or she marvels at that blessing, and then she marvels at the blessings of Mary, at her privilege. Blessed are you among women. In other words, she is saying to Mary, you are among all the women of the world. You specifically are counted as blessed. She elevates her, not to elevate Mary the person, not to, to put her on a pedestal, but to say, no, God has given you something that he's given nobody else. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. In other words, the child that you have, there are great plans for. And she has some inkling of what those plans are, because look at verse 43, what Elizabeth says. She calls the child in the womb her Lord. She says, what is it to me that the mother of my Lord has come to me? Now, for someone in those days and in that situation, a, a member of a Levite household, the wife of a priest to say, Lord, she is meaning possibly a couple of things. Either this is the Christ child or this is God himself. Now, which one we had, which one she had in mind, we, we can't know because the term is used interchangeably for Christ throughout the scriptures. And sometimes it's people who understand that he's God in the flesh. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's people just being polite to him because of his position as a good teacher, as an influential person. But she says, my Lord, what a blessing that the mother of my Lord has come to visit. And she even remarks about her own son's uh, joy in her, in her womb because she shares with Mary what happened. When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now later we'll talk about Mary's situation and we'll talk about the weight of her situation and with the implications of her present situation in her life and in the world and what it would mean to the future. And I want that term to echo that when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And then she remarks about the faith of Mary. And this is maybe the most important thing. In verse 45 is where we find this. Blessed is she who believed. That's the word faith in action. 
Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Well, this is profoundly important understand what she means by this, that Mary, you are blessed as one who's believed God. And when we get to the book of Hebrews, and we have a, a very famous chapter there where it accounts many people of faith, here's what it says there. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For it is for by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. In other words, of all things you could say about the people of old, that is, the people who've gone before, the forefathers, the people of the Old Testament, all that could be said about them, the most important thing, the thing that marks them, the thing that it says on their badge of honor if they were given one, would be faith. And she says, you're blessed because you believed that there would be a fulfillment of things. And what does she mean by the fulfillment of things? Well, the better question might be, what does she not mean? Because when we talk about the fulfillment of things in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, that can be an entire series of sermons. In fact, it's kind of the plot of every sermon, some little part of what it is that he came to fulfill, what it is that he came to do. Paul says it this way in his opening to the letter of 2 Corinthians. He says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That all the things that God promised in all the Old Testament, which is a pretty long book, he says all those things find their yes in him. And this is at the root of the joy of the people of God. We take our joy from the promises of God and seeing them fulfilled before our eyes and having known that so many have been fulfilled, so many are being fulfilled, that all that has ever been promised will be fulfilled. And nothing in the world will stop those things. What in the world will stop the promises of God? Has not everything in the world tried? Has not Satan tried? Have not people tried to stop and to halt and to squash the promises of God? And they've all failed to stop the promises of God. And as certain as there is a world made by God that we stand upon now is the certainty we have that it is being redeemed by God, is the certainty we have that he will come and finish the job. The certainty that there was a Christ child that we celebrate this time of year carries over into the certainty that the King of kings and Lord of lords will come on the clouds to redeem his people and bring in everlasting righteousness and peace and a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem with which we will dwell with the Lord forever. It is a unity of promise and a blessing that she pronounces upon Mary is that you believed there'd be a fulfillment of what was spoken to you. Well, that's just Elizabeth's joy. 
That's just what Elizabeth has to say. What about Mary's joy? Mary has a few things to say here too. Mary, first of all, let's read these verses, 46 through 54, and we'll take a look, try to understand the weight of what we see there. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things. For me and his holy name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And as a footnote at the end of this, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's look at this a bit at a time. I want to break this, for Mary, I want to break this into three points, really. And, and I'm going to kind of follow them backwards through the text here. Is First of all, is she sees this as a national fulfillment, as a national blessing. Uh, that is concerning the nation of Israel. Mary, as you know, lived in a time under Roman oppression, when they had been under Roman oppression for a good long time. And if you trace their history backwards from there, what you find is, well, they, they're under Roman oppression at the time of Mary, which means Rome's in charge, they make the laws, they tax the people heavily and send it out of the country to feed their empire. And as you go back in time, you find out, okay, well, before that, they were oppressed by the Greeks. They had a short time in which they were independent in between there, but that didn't last long, and that ended up having its own problems and having their own autocracy to deal with. And you go back from there and you find out before the, the Greeks, they were under Persian rule. Now Persia, yeah, they returned them from exile that the Babylonians had given them, but even so, they were still underneath Persia. They still didn't have a king of their own. They still didn't worship in the way they wanted to. They had rebuilt the temple but it was minuscule compared to what it had been in Solomon's day, compared to what the Babylonians destroyed. Prior to the exile, of course, we have the subjection of Babylon and the destruction of the temple and all those things. So they had a history of difficulty, to say the least. To say the least. And part of what Mary and Elizabeth and everyone living at that time understood is that this ought not to be so for the people of God. This has been brought upon by our unfaithfulness, by our rebellion to God, and these things have happened as God had promised us in his word that these things would happen if we didn't obey him. But they were hoping and praying for relief for that time in which they dwelt in the land with a king of their own, with peace on all sides. And as she says here, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. 
See, it had mercy upon him. And he remembered it. And this coming of the Christ child, this coming of John the Baptist, is a sign God has not forgotten the mercy that he proclaimed to us. Because see, in the promises of God, in the end of the book of Deuteronomy, right before they went into the promised land, God laid it all out for him. If you obey me, here's the blessings you're going to have in the land. If you don't obey me, here are the curses. And if you still don't obey me, you're going into exile. But even if it goes that far, I'll bring you back because there's other things I have to do. And the fact that this is happening. Now Mary and Elizabeth are remembering and they obviously know the scriptures because from what you see Mary says, virtually everything she says is a quote or an allusion to something in the word of God. She knows the scriptures. They both know the scriptures. And they understand that by these things happening, that last part of that bit out of Deuteronomy is happening. God is having mercy. God is remembering, even though you do the worst of the worst and I have to take you out of the land, I'll bring you back. I'll have mercy on you and I will change you and I will bring a king that will rule righteously and with justice and over even the other nations forever. Do you see, it's the first sign of anything happening in their nation for about 400 years. And ever since Genesis 12, God has been working these things out well over a thousand years to the time of Mary and Elizabeth, God had been dealing with them already. And what's interesting about what Mary has to say here in these short verses, these nine verses of her song here, is that she has in view something eternal. He has look in verse 48 here. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, speaking of herself, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. All generations. She's not thinking she'll be famous in Israel. She's seeing the big picture. And this is amazing because because one would think, for, from someone from a disadvantaged background, where we looked at last time the fact that she was obviously poor, that she was from kind of a nowhere town that was kind of despised in a despised area of Israel because of the Gentile influence and the presence there. She comes from that background. She might just be happy with having a nice home, getting a little notoriety, being somebody in town. But she is seeing this beyond even her own life and saying, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And this is not a prideful statement of her because she uses the word blessed. She doesn't say from now on, all generations will call me great. She doesn't say from now on, all generations will pray to me and make special signs concerning me. No, she says, from now on, all generations will count me blessed. In other words, we will recognize for generations what God has done to and for and through her. And she gets it. Now, she doesn't know everything that's going to happen. 
but she understands a great deal. And look at this in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And part of the difficulty of biblical translation is trying to make it readable and get the sense across. But the sense here that his mercy is for those who fear him, it's for those who are fearing him from generation to generation. In other words, this is a continuous thing. Always, always with God, those who fear him receive his mercy. And it's going from generation to generation. She has eternity in mind. And by saying it this way, she's implying even the past. His mercy is for those who are fearing him from generation to generation. And then there's something else here. It's very subtle. And of course, the, the word forever appears here at the end of verse 55, in, into the forever or into the, the ages. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham. Well, all this falls on that, this whole sentence. He's helped in remembrance as he spoke forever. And so these things having this eternal kind of implication to it. But there's something else going on here behind the scenes. You know, raise your hand if you remember the helping verbs. Come on. You're... All right. Somebody can actually name them all. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Um, the helping verbs. You see the helping verbs here, all through here? Where things like this. For he has done. Okay. And he has looked. And these are interesting because these are all in an aorist kind of tense. In other words, it, that was the Greek idea of a completed action, something that's been accomplished. And yet, it's balanced with this threefold eternal view in what she says, because she says generation to generation twice, she says forever once. And so this whole thing kind of has this eternal and ongoing view, but at the same time, she's presenting what God has done as things that are done. Even though at her time, they're still in progress. Even though in our day, these are still in progress. Well, look what, what it says here. He has done great things for me, okay? And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. Has he done scattering the proud? We know he's not. You've read the book of Revelation, right? That's going to be an ongoing thing to the very return of Christ. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. This is something ongoing, filling the hungry and the rich being sent away. And of course, he doesn't mean that, you know, that he is separating people based on their socioeconomic level. No, what it means is, are they poor in spirit? Are they rich in their own eyes? He has helped his servant Israel. These are speaking as though these things are accomplished from generation to generation forever. So this is something that's not only national, it's eternal. And I want to also point out that this is something that's personal, very personal with, uh, with Mary. And that's where she begins in uh, the passage there. She begins in verse 46. 
My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And the first thing is, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. She speaks of herself. And she referred to herself as his servant before when he came to her and said these things. And she said, let it be done to your servant according to your word. And here she's agreeing with what Elizabeth said in verse 42, that indeed she is blessed. And she is in a blessed position. And indeed all generations will call her blessed. And why? Because he who is mighty has done great things for her. Holy is his name. You remember her asking the Lord, how will this be since I am still a virgin? And he said, the power of the Lord will overshadow you. That's, that's what he's done. He's overshadowed her. He has blessed her. He has placed something upon her. And he has done this miraculous thing in her. And he ends by saying, for nothing will be impossible with God. This poor girl from the back country of Israel, unknown, disadvantaged, living in an area despised by the religious elites and, and many of the faithful among the Israelites, considered her unclean out there living among the Gentiles. Yeah, he's done it for her. And somehow she knows that this is relevant to her own salvation, for she rejoices in what she says, God, my Savior making it personal, not general. Oh, yeah, he's a savior. No, she's saying he's my savior. She is pointing to the fact that this is personal, that he has done things for her personally, and she rejoices in God for that because she these are not things that she applied for and was found to be qualified for. These are not things that she had worked toward diligently for a long time. No, an angel shows up one day. And these things are granted to her by the great grace of God. See, this was personal with her, and it's always been personal with God. I want you to think back through the Old Testament and think of, of the heroes of old. And as we read their accounts and their lives that they have, was he not always also personal? Yes, he was working a salvation plan for the world. Yes, he was working with the entire nation of Israel to bless the entire world. And that was the promise to Abraham from the very beginning. But did he not bless Abraham personally? And did he not bless Isaac personally? And you read the account of Jacob, who was quite the scoundrel, but God was patient with him and gave him some things in his life that challenged him, that shaped him, that formed him into a better person. Wasn't that personal? And what about Joseph and the way that the Lord worked in his life to take him from the lowest of possible places to the highest of possible places, even foreshadowing our Savior? And one that comes to mind that you really should read as homework is in 1 Samuel, in chapter 1 and 2, in which we meet a woman named Hannah. And Hannah was barren. She had had no children. She prays to the Lord, receives an answer from a priest. May it be done to you. And then she sings a great song that is very similar to the song Mary 
sings here. You need to look that one up because the similarities are striking between the two. And all those people, and Samuel that follows, and David, and, and all the faithful prophets that we love to read about, and you know, like Daniel and Jeremiah and the others, they sacrificed. They lived through tough times. They sometimes lived in incredibly perilous times, but the Lord brought them through, and he was the personal savior of all of God's people. Not to say they didn't suffer hardship. Not to say that they weren't even killed in the midst of those difficulties. But that God has brought them through by faith. And you know who needed to know that? Mary did. Pregnant, but not yet married. People would talk. As we see in the book of John, they did talk. She was the subject of scandal. How was she going to be able to live in a community-based kind of society as an outcast, having committed something they saw as a grievous sin? Surely they wouldn't believe her if she told them the truth. And how would that affect her son, the one whose care was given into her, really, was given over to her? How is she going to handle all that? The Lord didn't specify. And what if Joseph left her? I mean, after all, who could blame him? He had every right to, by law, he could have brought public charges against her and she could be stoned for adultery. How is she going to explain this to him? See, she finds out about this and the first thing she does, she goes to see Elizabeth. Why? Because in all the world, and the angel told her about Elizabeth, in all the world, who's going to understand but somebody else going through a miraculous thing as well? See, in light of all the weight of stress upon her about what are going to be the social and personal consequences of her situation, in light of those things, we might read her rejoicing here, and it might seem out of place. She seeks out fellowship, though, very wisely, among the godly, the only one who would understand. And there she finds rejoicing and encouragement. So she was the target of scandal. She was brought, but she brought up the Savior of the world. She was saved herself. She believed the message. She is found there in Acts chapter 1 in the upper room, praying with the others the day that the Holy Spirit came upon the church for the first time. The hardship that she endured was temporary, but the joy is eternal. And she is still rejoicing today. And Joseph, we find out in Matthew chapter 2, he had resolved to leave her, but quietly. He wasn't going to make a public issue of it or bring charges against her. But God intervened. He sent an angel to help Joseph believe, and then Joseph acted in faith, like Mary was acting in faith. What if she had spent all this time worrying about these things instead of rejoicing? Do you see the lesson? Is it starting to hit home a little bit? 
Why would we waste time worrying about the things that God has got that he must handle that are his issues? Because indeed, Jesus said, come to me, oh, you are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's like, put your burdens on me. When you are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, your problems are his problems. And your role is to rejoice. Is to rejoice in the right now. No matter how bad things seem, no matter how bad things really truly are from a worldly perspective, what are they compared to the eternal weight of glory to be revealed in the people of God? God had those things covered for her, and God intervened. She took this time to revel, to marvel, to celebrate at what God was doing, to marvel at his goodness. And in this moment that could have been and, and probably was for her, honestly, filled with great distress, she trusted in him who called her into this role. And so we have to look at this scripture, and as Paul explains the scripture, it's like a mirror. Where is my joy? Or do I just have some level of comfort or happiness? Do I really have the joy that surpasses understanding? Like the peace we have that surpasses understanding. This rejoicing done by John and these, and, and these two women is entirely centered around the grace of God. By invoking the word blessing, by speaking about what God was doing and fulfilling his promises and everything else, do you see where their focus is? Their focus is not on the situation and not on their present difficulties. Their focus is on the eternal. Their focus is on God who saves. Their focus is on the one who is fulfilling all the good things in Christ. So Mary's joy has this great personal implication and it is personal to us as well. So we want to see as we look at these things some applications here. The first thing is this. Rejoice in the working of God in your life. And I know some people are in situations where they're like, it just doesn't look like God's work zone here. This is a mess. I am in an absolute difficulty and pinched in a mess and, and I can't frankly see the other end out of it and people are hurt and I am hurt. But my question is, do you know the promises of God? The long-term promises of being in his presence forever, of being perfected in Christ, of being partially perfected in the here and now, of being provided for in the here and now. See, there's some real temporal promises of God that need to be understood, that he said in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat or where you're going to stay or what you're going to wear. Just seek first the kingdom. Those things will be worked out. And I can testify in my own life. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen for many people. The promises of God will all be done, will all be accomplished. And as he says, in Romans 8.28, one of the greatest promises of Scripture is that he's working all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
The good news is that that frees us up then to focus on his purpose, to make that our first of all priorities, knowing that he'll make the rest fall into place. And secondly, let us remember that his mercy is for those who fear him. And this is something she says. She said in verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And this fear is the, the reverent, obedient kind of fear. This is the fear that I am most concerned about the Lord. I'm most concerned about obeying him. Like Daniel's friends feared God more than they feared that fiery furnace. Daniel himself feared God more than he feared the lion's den. We see that, that this fear of the Lord is what gets our priorities straight. And this is something that we can pray for. And this is something we develop. And something that takes hold the more and more we spend time in his scriptures and in the fellowship of his people and studying these things with him. So let us put our concerns for what God wants first in order to truly understand these benefits that come. Follow him, he will fill you with his spirit, and he will give you great joy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your servant Mary, your servant Elizabeth, your servant John. We thank you for the rejoicing that you gave them in this time when Mary came to visit Elizabeth in a difficult time in her life, we see how you carried her, how you helped her. For Lord, while you're accomplishing great and mighty things for the universe, you're caring for us one by one. So we carry your gospel forward as you carried your child. And Lord, I pray that we will be granted the faith to see these things to see our lives in an eternal perspective as she did, to see in our lives happening and in our hearts by your Spirit the fulfillment of those promises that you have made through all the ages. Open our eyes to see their fulfillment. Let us see what's happening behind the scenes, as it were, to draw back the curtain and see how you indeed are great. You have done great things. You are doing great things. And you will do many more great things. Grant us this day the joy which comes with the season. Let it be sincere. Let us have it in knowledge and in truth. Let us, Lord, worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you, Lord, for your great ministry among the saints, for your good word that you have brought this day. In Jesus' name, amen.